everyone and welcome to Airy Live. I'm Chris Hopstock, Architect Education Specialist at Black Spectacles. I'm excited to be your host for today's Airy Live, which is all about becoming a licensed architect. We'll be joined by NCARB's Jared Zern, who will share the steps you need to complete in order to become a licensed architect. Jared will share expert advice ranging from Airy study strategies to understanding state licensure requirements to navigating the AXP. If you're joining us for the first time, Black Spectacles is the first ever NCARB approved online test prep provider for all six of the ARE 5.0 divisions. Our test prep includes video lectures, practice exams, flashcards, and virtual workshops, all available online, with memberships available either for individual architects, firms, AIA chapters, or schools. If you're curious about how you can get your whole firm on a membership and get your boss to pay for it, go to blackspectacles.com and head to our pricing section. I'll share a link uh, to that in the chat. We're also the first test prep provider to offer an ARE guarantee. If you use our expert membership to the fullest and don't pass the ARE, we will pay for your retake. I'll share the link in the chat with more info on that as well. Uh, we have some exciting developments around our ARE study materials. We recently rolled out something everybody's been asking for, quizzes for both PPD and PDD. In total, we released about 200 questions to help you improve your performance on exam day by reinforcing your recall with our quizzes. In addition to PPD and PDD section quizzes, we've launched brand new study materials for CE and upgraded our virtual workshop exercises for all six divisions. We'll be adding new study content all year, so stay tuned to see what's next. At our next ARI Live broadcast on May 19th, 2022, We'll revisit several questions focused on site selection from PPD, PDD, and PA. We'll discuss how to locate a building on site, considering factors such as topography, zoning regulations, and microclimate. Today, we will be engaging exclusively in our online ARI community, so head over to that thread if you haven't already. You can either click the link that I am sharing in the chat box or find it in the ARI Live section of our ARI community homepage. Everybody who posts on our thread today will be eligible to win a free Black Spectacles t-shirt. So head over to community.blackspectacles.com and just say hi. Don't forget to stay tuned until the end of the podcast to see if you want. I share that link in the chat box and you can find it in the episode description if you're listening after the podcast. We'll also be offering a Q&A session with Jared at the end of the episode. So be sure to post your questions in the community and we'll answer them then. Uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest, Jared Zern, Vice President of Examination at NCARB. Jared has worked on the area for more than 13 years and has insights into all examination-related policies, procedures, and development. So welcome, Jared. Great. Well, thank you, Chris, for having me. And yeah, I hope our goal today is to answer as many questions and provide the insights that you need as a licensure candidate. So thanks for being here. Yeah, we're happy to have you. So. Um, Let's get right into it, uh, Jared. Help us understand the relationship between state licensure, the licensing boards, and NCARB. Yeah, Chris, I think this is a, just an important thing to remind everybody that, and most of you know this, that licensure in the United States is a state-by-state -state process. So I am a licensed architect, but I'm a licensed architect in the state of Minnesota because that's where, you know, that's where I was working at the time when I um, was 
pursuing my license. Um, I wanted to get licensed in Minnesota. And you need to just understand that because we're going to talk a little bit about rules today uh, to getting licensed. And rules do vary by jurisdiction. So I was licensed in Minnesota, still am. If I want to, I now live in Virginia. If I want to get licensed in Virginia, I have to make sure I follow Virginia's rules for licensure. So it's just kind of important to understand states control licensure. NCARB is really a national organization composed of the jurisdictional licensing boards. So NCARB only has 55 members, and those 55 members are the jurisdictional licensing boards. So the 50 states, Guam, Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, the Northern Mariana Islands, um, and the District of Columbia. So that's how we come up with 55. So our job at NCARB is to develop programs and support resources that allow our member boards, these 55 jurisdictions, to hopefully adopt similar patterns and similar programs to make it honestly easier for you as a licensure candidate to get initial licensure and then get reciprocal licensure, which is where you can get licensed in multiple jurisdictions at the same time. Thank you for that, Jared. Um, talk to us a little bit about hand, uh, how candidates can help build on their education when they're thinking about starting this journey uh, into licensure. Yeah, education is really the first step for most people, right? Now, and education can be a lot of different types of education. There are some jurisdictions that you can get a license to practice architecture in with just a high school degree. And that's perfectly fine. Um, and actually, it's 17 of our 55 jurisdictions do not require education above a high school degree. Um, the other jurisdictions, the other 38, they are actually looking for what's called a NAB accredited architectural degree. And so NAB is a different organization than NCARB, and they have developed accreditation standards that universities all across this country have adopted and have aligned to so that their degree program is an accredited program. And so my most important statement on education is you need to understand your education degree as a licensure candidate. If you have an AB degree, great. You need to know you have an AB degree. You may not. You may have a, a degree in architecture, but it's actually not the NAB accredited degree. And so, again, doesn't mean you can't get licensed. It just simply means you're going to have a slightly different path. And what ends up happening is for people who don't have an AB degree, jurisdictions require additional years of experience before they will grant you that license. So the kind of the quick way is if you have a four-year degree, if you have a Bachelor of Science in Architecture, um, those are not NAB accredited degrees you have if you have the five-year they call it the professional degree the bachelor of architecture or a five-year master of architecture or maybe even a two-year master of architecture on top of a four-year um, undergrad degree in architecture those are likely the nab degree ones but i say likely because really ncarb can also help you understand is your degree accredited or not you can contact our customer service department they can tell you um, we have this giant reference book where we look up the degree you have, the year you completed it, and we can help understand, you know, whether your degree is a NAB degree or not. So would you would you say the best way for somebody, if, if they're having a little bit of confusion about this topic, about their degree, would you say the best way for them is to reach out to NCARB or, you know, could could their university help them out? Um, what's, what's the easiest I, way for somebody to figure this out? 
Yeah, I certainly hope your university, if you're in school right now, I hope your university is doing a good job of explaining to you which degree you're earning, and your university is definitely a go-to resource for every licensure candidate. And even if you're just an, you know, an alumnus to the university, you can reach back out and you can say, hey, I, have, I earned this degree this year. You know, as far as the school knows, is that a NAB accredited degree? Um, that's one resource. Again, NCARB is another resource for you. And even the NAB website, um, it's naab.org. You can go on there and look up. They have the listing of all of the accredited degree programs. Honestly, it kind of depends on your school. I went to North Dakota State University and there was only one architecture degree and it was a NAB accredited degree. But if you go to some larger universities, they offer a NAB degree path and they offer a non-NAB degree path, like a four year that they assume people are gonna do a two year master's. And this is where, yeah, talking to your university can be very helpful. Yeah, that's that's great insight. And it, it was pretty straightforward uh, for me as well. My university only offered one type of degree, um, but it's, it sounds like the best thing for you to really do is to, to think about this before you get into uh, before you start uh, this process, because it really affects how long you're you're going to need. Uh, it, it kind of affects the next steps that you're going to need to take in terms of education, um, what degree you're earning, um, so that you can sort of chart your path forward. Exactly. And again, I will re restate: you do not have to have a NAB accredited degree to get licensed to practice architecture in this country. There are 17 jurisdictions that will give you an initial license to practice architecture. It just takes more experience. And of our 55 jurisdictions, there are only nine jurisdictions that would actually require a NAB degree for reciprocal licensure. So you may get your initial license in one jurisdiction, work for a few more years, and then be able to get reciprocal licensure in one of those other jurisdictions. So there's lots of pathways, and that's one thing NCARB does is we work with our boards to, to create those pathways for you. Yeah, that's great insight. Um, let's let's talk a little bit. We've talked about leveraging your education experience. Let's talk about other than the ARA itself. Uh, you know, another important step in licensure: uh, navigating the AXP. Yes, this is the experience part I talked about. And so, when I say AXP, hopefully, what you will understand is that is the structured experience program that NCARB has created in collaboration with our member boards to say this is the base and really think of it as a minimum. This is the minimum experience that those state licensing boards want for you to have across the six experience areas before they're willing to give you a license to practice architecture. And so that program, it's you have to document a total of 3,740 hours spread across the six different experience areas. But really what we want you to understand at NCARB is we want you to understand that you have to think beyond hours and you need to think about tasks. So if you look at the AXP guidelines in each of our six experience areas, we have started to outline different tasks or skills basically that you need as an individual to practice architecture independently. And so by using AXP appropriately, what you're really doing is you're building your competency to be that independent architectural practitioner. Um, you build that experience by working with other architects or in other design related professions. And you'll even notice when you look at the guidelines that we have different work settings, we call them. And so there's work setting A, which is working it, you know, under a lawfully practicing architect. Um, that's work setting A. And there's really no limitations on the experience that you can gain if you're in work setting A. 
But we know there are people who have jobs in other areas. Maybe you work for an engineering firm that doesn't provide architecture, or maybe you work in a really specific design firm, that's just your first job you've gotten and you haven't been able to get a job at an architecture firm. Those fall under work setting O. And so if, if you are not working under a licensed architect doing the full services of architecture lawfully, you probably fall under work setting O. You do need to understand that there are limitations to O. You can only go so far in each area under work setting O, and you honestly will never be able to complete AXP unless you work at least like 1,860 hours of your reported hours under a licensed architect. So it's important to understand some of the, the nuances of the program, but it really is about getting you a broad range of experience that prepares you to be that independent practitioner. And what are, uh, what are some examples of the types of experience that you can gain in one of those other settings, maybe working for an engineer versus um, a type of experience that you can only gain working directly for a licensed architect? And can you talk us through a little bit of the, the logic behind that decision? Oh, certainly. So under work setting O, it ranges all the way from, you know, work under another licensed professional, such as an engineer, or maybe doing design and construction related employment. So you can earn like up to 320 hours of your AXP doing design or construction. Because some of you maybe had a job or are in a job right now where you're you're just working, right, on a construction in a construction firm you can get up to 320 hours reported. Now there's no limitation as far as which experience area those hours get allocated to because one person may be in a construction firm and on the job site quite a bit and it's really more related to our construction and evaluation experience area. But we may have another person working in a construction firm but it's actually related more to contracts and project management and so it may fall under the, you know, the project management experience area. So don't think that because you're in work setting O, you're limited to just specific experience areas. You can really be earning experience across all six areas where your limitations come in is just how many hours you can report as a maximum with each of those things. Got it, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Jared. Um, and I guess, and the logic, and Chris, you had asked the question, I'll follow up. You said, yeah. what, like, what's the logic to it? Well, realistic, the logic is, yes, we acknowledge that people are gaining valuable experience in work settings other than working under an architect. However, if you're going to become a licensed architect, having worked directly under a licensed architect is critical. So there, you know, it makes sense that we wouldn't want someone to only work in an engineering firm, never be exposed to the full service practice of architecture, and then be granted a license to practice the full service of architecture. Yeah, that makes sense. I'll ask one more follow-up question here. What, what about somebody that might be working, let's say, for a construction company, so they're in that O-type setting, but um, they are working, there's a licensed architect that works there. Um, they're not doing architecture, you know, formal architecture at that company. They're they're doing uh, construction. Can, can they gain any of the, um, can they consider that an A setting because there's an, a licensed architect there, or is that still an O setting? Yeah, if there's, if someone is, if you're, the work you are doing is is not architecture. If you, yes, like I'm a licensed architect, but let's say I go get a job, you know, working in a construction firm and all we're really doing is construction, right? We're not doing architecture and we're not, and like I'm not using my license to practice architecture, then that's not work setting A. Then that is, that is work setting O. That's an important distinction to make. Um, 
Let's move on to kind of the meat and potatoes of this uh, discussion here, which is succeeding at the ARE. Um, if you could give us a little bit about, uh, tell us the, the purpose of the ARE, taking, you know, really taking a step back about why, um, why our candidates are, are doing this whole process and then, you know, share your, uh, your insights into how somebody can best prepare to actually take the exam. Absolutely. I think the most important thing that a candidate needs to understand to be successful is that this entire process, and you've already heard me use these terms, this entire process is about assessing you as an individual to practice independently. And the other term you may hear stated is for you to be able to be in responsible control of the project. And I know this can be a challenge for you as a licensure candidate, especially if you are working in a larger firm setting where you may not be getting exposure to all, I mean, you know all of this stuff is happening inside of these firms from business development over in one end of the firm to the, the design in another, maybe even in another studio of the firm, and then they hand that off for like the documentation and, and creation of the the model and all of the specifications, and then it gets handed off to another group to even do the construction administration portion. And and that's the world you understand as you know someone becoming an architect. However, one thing you have to know if you're in that situation is when you show up for this exam, this exam is about you having the knowledge to do all of those different things across those different phases of practice. And so, I, I have this conversation with candidates a lot about knowing that you're doing this for you as an individual. And architecture is extremely collaborative, but in the end, an architect, a single individual, seals that set of drawings or the technical submissions and says, I'm taking responsible for this. And that's what this exam is about. This exam is about you demonstrating your knowledge to do that thing, to take that responsibility. Yeah, I think that's really important context. Um, in terms of understanding what's going to be on the exam, what, what would you say is uh, is the best way to go about um, really understanding the content that's being addressed? So I think the the first thing to understand about the content is is clearly if you've started to look at the ARE, you know that it's broken down into six divisions, and it's actually the same six division or content areas as the experience areas. And that was a purposeful decision that NCARB made, you know, many years ago to align AXP with ARE, but then to also kind of start to structure things around management of a, of a project and practice and then the phases of a project. And so just understanding the overall context of, okay, I'm going to go in and I'm going to take this division of the ARE, but every division of there, and we're, I'm sure we're going to talk about this more, Chris, is even though we have a division on practice management, it doesn't mean you can completely ignore everything else about architecture while you're thinking about practice management. And when you're in construction and evaluation, yes, we're clearly in the construction evaluation phase, but you, you have to have the general knowledge of architecture as a whole to be able to be successful at being you know, someone who does construction and evaluation. So there's this element of of overlap that to some degree exists across the divisions. Um, and we can talk more about that today around like, where does the overlap come from and how can somebody prepare to be ready to go in and be like, yes, I'm ready to take practice management, but I know like there's, 
Like I can't just ignore everything about project management when I'm doing practice management because there's they're interrelated. Yeah, I think um, I think a lot of um, there's definitely a huge discussion about the overlap uh, across the divisions and the. To me, it, it makes a lot of sense, especially when you say, you know, obviously you can't do construction and evaluation if you don't understand um, the, you know, the design and documentation portion. Um, I think a lot of people try to address this overlap by taking the exams in a specific order. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on an order that makes maybe the most sense or if it really should be personalized to the individual or really any other strategy to, to think about the overlap. Yeah, from an order perspective, I will say I I don't think it really matters if you take practice management first or project management first. What I will say is I think it makes sense to take them in relation to one another because there, there clearly is this interconnectedness with practice management and project management. And our, our candidates over the last several years have identified this. Um, and I know many of you are basically, you kind of study for both at the same time. And then you go in and try to take both of them in a relatively close time frame. And I think there's some similarities with project planning and design and project development and documentation. They, those two divisions, PPD and PDD, definitely are, are related, but it's about covering content, but at different phases of the architectural process. So if you want to study just for project development and documentation, okay, but the reality is when you go to then study for project planning and design, you're probably going to realize like, oh, there's this is a lot of the same stuff. I'm just thinking about it slightly differently. Um, so there, it makes sense to kind of group those two together. And I know I've heard from some candidates about construction and evaluation that you go in to take construction and evaluation and you're going to get questions very likely on this exam, which are like you're on a job site, which is what you do in construction and evaluation. But when you're on the job site, you're going to be put in a situation to make a decision about a material that has been installed on the project in front of you. And what do you do, right? Because that's the that's kind of the kind of question you're going to get in CE. Well, what do you do now? Because you're on the job site and you see that they installed X and you have to identify what X is, but maybe they actually should have installed Y. And that's what this comes down to. So you still need to have like that material knowledge even while you're taking construction and evaluation. Yeah, and what about the what about the PA exam? Would you would you say that that has um, overlap with any of the other divisions? Is that like more of a standalone exam? So personally, in my insights, as I as you had mentioned, like I've been working you know with this exam for 13 years and all the way through 5.0 from the very beginning. PA is a bit of a unique division. Um, programming and analysis is all about making the you know making those decisions about what's the problem that your client is facing and then you know determining that so that you can come up with right that's what programming is so that way you can come up eventually with what a design solution is so pa is unique in that regard of what skills you have to be good at programming and analysis and so if if there's one division that probably sits alone more than the others it probably is the pna division but I think what I've heard from candidates is some candidates do find that programming and analysis, you know, kind of relates a little bit to project management because, you know, you're still thinking about running a project and, and building out a project. And it does relate a little bit about project planning and design because you certainly, what we all know this as architects, right? We start thinking about what are the problems the client is bringing to me and we can't help ourselves from trying to come up with solutions like almost immediately. 
I'm sure you've all done it. You you meet with a client for the very first time and they say, well, here's what's going on, here's what I would like, and almost immediately your brain starts firing off ideas. So there's an element of programming and analysis, which is you're really supposed to be just not solutioning, you're supposed to be problem identification, uh, but the reality is we tend, admittedly as architects, to jump to solutioning. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. You know, there's there's definitely a little bit of fuzziness between the uh, sometimes between the phases of a project and you know the architect's tendency to sort of want to get to the next stage and start solving the problem. So uh, that that definitely makes sense uh, in the context of the overlap on these exams. Yeah. And um, what about um, helping candidates understand their strengths and weaknesses so they can think about how they personally should should uh, attack these exams. Do you have any tips you can share about, about that? Yeah, I, well, I think the, the first big tip is that, yeah, you need to take the time to understand your strengths and weaknesses before you go into studying. And I'm gonna be very honest and admit that we all know there is an, in, you know, an incredible amount of content that relates to being an architect. And the reality is you can't know all of it. And I will tell you, we're not trying to assess all of it on the ARE, we really do not. Um, we are basically sampling questions across the broad spectrum of architecture. And what we're focused on primarily with the ARE is what we consider health, safety, welfare issues. We wanna test you on your ability to protect clients and protect the public. That's what it's all about. And so when you go to prepare, if you think you're at zero and you want to learn everything up to 100, it's going to take you forever, right? You, you already have education, you're not at zero. You already have experience, you're definitely not at zero. But what you need to now do is say, okay, I have my education, I have my experience, where am I strong and where am I weak? And my personal story is that I was very strong as a licensure candidate in the areas of materials, detailing, putting a building together, understanding structures and mechanical systems. Like that was my thing. Right, I was not the super strong designer. I was definitely not the super strong running a firm. Um, and so when it came time to, for me to prepare for the ARE when I did it, it was, okay, I need to get better at these areas. And so this is that self-reflection piece. And my tip to you is NCARP has put out, and it currently lives in our ARE 5.0 handbook. It's the listing of all of the objectives. Each of our divisions is broken down into sections and each section has multiple objectives. That objective is what our item writers, the people who write the questions on the ARE, they use that objective description as a guide to write questions for the exam. So you as a candidate should take our handbook and you should go through each objective when you're preparing for a division or a couple of divisions in tandem and you should self-rate. You should look at it and go, hey, if this, this description and this objective Am I, uh, you know, give yourself a one to five score or a, you know, one to 10 score and start to identify where you're strong and where you're weak, because that will help you then focus your, your preparation. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think I have the handbook open on my computer almost all the time. It's a, it's a really invaluable resource. And one of the, one of the things that I find um, really helpful in there is that the percentage of each objective uh, on on the exams is listed right out there in in uh, in sort of a range. So um, one of the one of the tips that I'll share is that um, I think a lot of people want to like Jared, like you were saying, want to be an expert on 
on all um, topics architecture before they get into the exam. Um, and obviously that's not possible. I don't, I don't know that anybody uh, is licensed or not uh, an expert on all things architecture. Correct. Yeah, so, correct. Um, so yeah, I would definitely suggest, uh, you know, when you see those topics that are one to 5% of the exam, I would personally recommend to maybe give that one to 5% of your studying effort um, and, and really focus on those, uh, the heavy hitter topics that have closer to a 25% um, rate of coverage on the exam so that you can focus your studies. Right. And it, I, I would agree in that you, you need to understand that, especially if you like building codes on some of our divisions is actually quite small from a percentage perspective or estimating is on one of the divisions I know is quite small. So if you're also fairly confident in your ability to do estimating and understand the various ways of estimating, or you're, you're somebody who like, yeah, you're comfortable with building codes. Like, oh yeah, let's talk exiting distance, you know, and everybody else is like, please leave me alone, Jared. I don't want to talk exiting distance. And I'm like, no, <laughs> this is really interesting, right? Um, you probably don't need to study near as much on that compared to the other areas. And so it is, it's understanding your strengths and weaknesses. And yeah, understanding that when you go into like a PPD, 30% um, of that exam very easily could be about materials and systems. Right, which is very heavy compared to some of the other areas. Yeah, and I love that rating system that you suggested. That's uh, it's, I'm, I'm going to steal that one when I talk to other candidates and suggest that they do that. Um, another uh, another thing that I I would say is um, you know another way that you can rate your um, your baseline level of knowledge before you jump into exam into an exam is just to take a, a practice exam right off the bat, um, right after you've gone through the, the handbook and you understand what's on the test. Just take a practice exam to, to really um, gauge your skills in, in that exam. Um, and that kind of brings me to, to my next question, uh, Jared, which is what, what would you say is the best way for candidates to practice the test experience itself, uh, whether, they be whether they'll be testing online yeah. in their home or at a testing center? So the, the best way for all candidates is to understand, and I, again, you have to know, and we all do know, that taking an exam is a very different experience. And it's very different than just working day to day. We know that there's this artificiality to taking a test and we all have to admit that. So part of your preparation needs to be preparing to actually take the exam. And so what NCARB has done is we have put out on our website, it's called the ARE 5.0 demonstration exam. I hope every candidate has clicked on that link many, many times. Um, if you log into your NCARB record, there's a quick link over on the right-hand side that says ARE 5.0 demonstration exam. You can go to it that way. We have a, it's on our website. Um, what it is, is it's 75 ARE questions from the past. Now they, they cover all six divisions because this is not meant to be a, a practice exam for a specific division like Chris was mentioning. This is meant to be, here's a bunch of ARE questions. We want you to practice getting used to the tool set. So we, we call it, you know, the exam delivery engine or something like that. You'll hear me refer to it as. So our delivery engine or delivery tool has, you know, the, the forward and the back buttons. It has the mark for review, little checkbox in the lower left-hand side of the screen. Um, it has the, how do you take a break? Like there's the take a break button. But when you click take a break, it actually takes you to your review screen. And then, you know, and why does it do that? And it does that on purpose because we want you to make sure you've answered all your questions before you go on break. So we don't just take you on break, we take you to the review screen and show you where your progress is at. But 
these are the kind of things where you as a candidate want to be completely comfortable in that entire experience before you ever go into a test center or you ever start your first online exam. I mean, I, it would be incredibly unfortunate if you're taking your test and go, oh yeah, how do I use that digital whiteboard again? Or how do I save something to the memory of the calculator? During your test is not when you want to be figuring out the tool set. So the good news is the demonstration exam is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's just online. It costs you nothing. You can take it as many times as you want. You can log in and play with it for 30 minutes at lunch. You can come back later and play with it for another 35 or 40 minutes. Um, I think that's the key to this whole thing is one, get really used to the tool set. And then two, honestly get used to taking an exam that lasts three and a half or four hours. Because I will tell you, I take the ARE. Like I, as one of the responsibilities that I have at NCARB is I will go in and I still do quality control and quality assurance work. And so I take the ARE. And I have, I've done it in test centers and I have done it online. And I, you know, even I was, I am not like conditioned to sit in a chair for four and a half hours and not move and answer questions. I can't do it. Uh, I am somebody, I know myself, I'm a 45 minutes in, mentally, I need a break. And so I build my testing strategy around 45 minutes in, I kind of go back and review my questions that I've answered, and then I go on break, I come back in, allows me to reset, and then I, then I move forward. And everybody's a little different. Some of you, I, I've talked to some candidates, they power through, like they have the stamina, that's amazing. Um, I've, I've talked to other candidates that are like, nope, they, they kind of do a 20 minute cycle, 20 minutes of answering questions, then they review, then they answer, they answer questions for another 20 minutes if they feel up to it, or they take a little mini break. Um, you don't even have to leave your chair if you take a break. Like you can just hit the break button, stop the clock for two or three minutes and just like close your eyes, right? Do the reset, great, come back on break, and then on to the next set of questions. So everybody's got to learn your way of taking this test. Yeah, that's great advice, and I, I'm not sure that everybody focuses on that enough. That's a, a critical part of, of taking this exam. I, I know my my personal strategy when, when I was taking ARE was that I wanted to go through all of the questions and just, I wanted to see every question and gain sort of a level of confidence and, and just answer all of the ones that I knew right off the bat um, in that first pass. And then every other question that I Either I, I didn't quite know and I knew I would have to analyze it or if it required a long calculation, I, I just marked it for review and I knew I would come back to it. But that personal strategy, you know, worked for me and it just gave me a level of confidence that, um, you know, if I knew, if I know that I went through it the first pass and I answered 60% of the questions, um, I just, I, I knew that I was, uh, I was doing pretty well and I had the rest of the time to answer the rest. Um, so yeah, I, great, I greatly encourage everyone to think about their um, their personal testing strategy and and don't go into it without a strategy. Think about how you want to attack the exam. Absolutely. Um, yeah, what would you, uh, just moving on here, what would you say, um, what would you say is the best way for somebody to really assess their readiness for an exam? Like, do, do you have a particular um, period of time that somebody should study for an exam? Is there anything that somebody should do, you know, one week, two weeks, three weeks away from the exam that, that uh, can best get them ready? Um, I guess I would, I will share, because again, I have, I have the benefit of having conversations with candidates all across the country on this um, and kind of even looking into some of the data behind the scenes on the exam. And so what the pattern tends to be typically is that 
candidates prepare for about two months before they take a division of the ARE. And so, and it's often quite common for candidates to then like schedule, like, and maybe it's the whole architect and we need a deadline thing, but it's like, okay, two months from now, I plan on taking this exam. So I'm going to, I'm going to sit down today. I'm going to schedule that appointment for two months from now. And then that kind of gives me the motivation to like, well, I better start studying. And that's great if that's what it takes. Um, so it's typically candidates take about two months to study. My advice to a candidate is going to be one, like, plan your studying in a way that you're not studying up until the till the test day i think that that only is going to increase your test anxiety and your stress if you feel like you're coming up close to your test day but you haven't gotten through the content in the way the way you felt you were or you don't feel as confident about some of the content area so whatever your testing plan is i would suggest you give yourself a, a window of at least a week if you think you're going to take an exam on july 1 let's say, you should be done studying and you should have practiced this test experience by the time you get to like June 25th at least, right? So that there's like this five or six days there where you basically, if you need to, can say like, great, I'm going to decompress and I'm going to relax and I'm going to go in and take that test. Or you can say, I've got six days. I'm going to go back and review this one little section that I probably feel the weakest on. Um, or I'm going to go back and just play with that digital whiteboard one more time. Um, so I think that's the key to coming up with a good development plan for you is give yourself time to have a window at the end to either decompress or just double check certain things, but don't try to cram things in at the last minute. I guess uh, to me that like that would be terrible for me to try to cram something in 24 hours or 48 hours before a test. I know yeah, I would not do better on the test. I would do worse if I was cramming before an exam. I totally agree. I gave myself, uh, you know, maybe four or five days before I would take the exam where I would just, uh, you know, I, I just understood that I knew what I knew and I wasn't probably wasn't going to learn much more in those last five days and only stress myself out. So, uh, yeah. you know, sort of go pencils down and, uh, and uh, just mentally prepare for the exam at that point. That's the best yep. thing. And then I guess the other thing I will, I'll say is that, okay, so you, you have your little time to decompress. And then also during that time, get comfortable with trusting your judgment because you're an intelligent person, right? You have done all of this stuff. You have, you've gone through school. You've got all these years of experience. You've done additional studying, to be honest, right? You're, you know, you've done what you can. Now you've got to trust your judgment when you're sitting in that test center or whether you're sitting online taking this exam. And so when that question comes up on screen, one, I will, I will caution everybody, do not read into the question. ARE questions are written in a way that provide the information you need in the question so you can answer the question. Um, the worst thing you can do as a candidate is to start to go, okay, I've read the question, and then that one time in my office when this, like, wait a minute, don't do the one time in my office, and don't do the, well, I heard a story once about somebody who blah, 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 because you're starting to infuse information that's going to probably push you off track. So you answer when you answer a question, only answer the question based on the information in front of you. And again, this is back to trust your judgment with the information you're provided on the exam. The more you layer in or what if the questions, the worse you will do because you will start to second guess yourself or you'll convince yourself that multiple options are correct when honestly they're I not. Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest piece of advice that I and, and the most common piece of advice that I give to candidates is uh, 
you know, it's natural for an architect to uh, want to solve a problem by applying all of this outside knowledge to the problem. That's sort of what an architect does every day, right? But uh, you've sort of got to separate yourself from that when you're sitting down to take the exam and realize that all of the information you need to answer that question has to be in the question. Um, and and uh, really, you, you shouldn't be saying, well, the question says that this uh, building is in Minnesota in May. And, you know, I visited Minnesota in May once and it was rainy. So maybe the rain is a concern. You shouldn't be doing that type of thing. Um, all right, we've talked a lot about the ARE, and um, I, we do have some questions coming in in our community, so I'll uh, I'll get to those at the end. I'm sure most of them focus on the ARE, but um, let's get to one last discussion point here before we open up the Q&A and talk about um, the migration to PSI. Uh, Jared, can you tell us a little bit more about that process and what all the candidates can expect about that? Yeah, I, I mean, this is a, a big moment um, in the history of the ARE, in all honesty, and, and I, I, it's a big moment for NCARB, and it's a big moment, but the reality is it's not going to make hopefully much of a difference to you as a candidate, uh, because the reality is we're not changing the exam. And I know if you've been paying attention to the communications that NCARB has been saying is we keep saying this over and over again, the content is not changing. Uh, the content is exactly the same. And when I say exactly the same, I mean exactly the same. I, I kid you not, today. I will, I mean, this is, I know the exam today, the questions that are being delivered in the Prometric test centers will be the exact same questions that are delivered in the PSI test centers when we migrate over to PSI. We're, we're literally not changing anything about the questions. We're not changing anything about the test driver engine. So the, the forward and the back buttons and the calculator and the digital whiteboard and um, all of that is staying exactly the same. What what you will notice that's going to be probably a little bit different as a candidate is clearly if you go to a physical test center to test, your PSI test center is not going to be located in the same place as your Prometric test center. It will have a different address. You will go to a different parking lot. You will take a different mass transit system to get there. Um, we have a list of where the PSI test centers are that are delivering the ARE at launch. It's on our website. You can go to ncarb.org forward slash PSI. It will take you to a specific web page all about PSI and NCARB. And then we have a link on there to a PDF which lists all these different PSI locations. What you're going to find is there's actually more PSI test center locations than Prometric test center locations. That's one of the reasons we picked to make this move to go to PSI is because they have a they have a larger dispersed footprint and we know then based on the data analysis we've done of our candidates and their zip codes and where they live all that stuff that it's better coverage now what I will tell you is I cannot guarantee that every candidate is going to have a PSI test center closer than a Prometric test center because there are some candidates that today probably were like this is amazing I can literally walk to my Prometric test center they may not be able to walk to their PSI test center. Um, and there'll be other candidates who are like, this is amazing. I love the fact that they switched to PSI because everything got closer. So we know there's a trade-off, but in general, all of the analysis shows us that PSI's better footprint coverage meets our candidate population and where they live. So, the, and I guess if you're an online tester, the only thing you're, you'll notice that's different about online versus, I mean, the check-in process is gonna be a little bit different, but it covers the same stuff. It's still take your camera, show your room, show your ID. Um, the screen, again, test driver is exactly the same. The only difference with PSI is that a slightly different toolbar across the top of the screen that relates to PSI instead of what used to be the parametric toolbar. So good news for you as a candidate is we're not changing the exam. We're trying to make the locations better for you. Um, and actually what we're going to do is we're updating our systems to improve your scheduling process and your payment process for the ARE because we actually want to make the PSI experience 
better than the Prometric experience. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of benefits there. That's uh, that's that's good news. What um, what are your what are the milestones that you're you're looking at um, for the migration? Well, the good news is we're on audio and you can't see the gray hair I've developed over the last like 14 <laughs> months working on this project. Um, we're actually super close, which is fantastic news uh, right now, honestly. So we're it's April 14th. We are in the middle of what's called an operational pilot. And NCARB is very happy. We had hundreds of candidates volunteer to migrate early and become PSI testers. And so we have right now over 300 candidates have scheduled appointments with PSI for the month of April. So it's a select little small group. They volunteered, again, dispersed across the country. They, we picked them based on re geographic region and, and different divisions that they're able to take so we can get a nice, a nice coverage. Um, and they're testing between now and the 23rd of April. They're basically going in and being the pilot testers for the rest of you. And they're giving us feedback on what they liked, what they didn't like, what about the system worked or didn't work, um, so we can make any last changes before this goes live for the rest of you. And our major milestones are that if you're a candidate today, you're going to be able to start migrating your eligibilities to PSI, which means then you can start scheduling in the PSI test centers. That's going to happen for you here in this late April, early May timeframe. And so you're going to watch for an announcement from NCARB in about two weeks that's going to say you can start migrating your eligibilities if you want to. Or you can continue to test with Prometric through May 31st. That's a really big milestone. It's the last day any candidate can test with Prometric is May 31st. I will tell you, uh, Prometric appointments are, are getting booked up. Uh, there's very high volumes already in May in with Prometric from other test publishers. We have like over 5,000 ARE administrations scheduled for the month of May. So we do know that candidates are running into um, a harder time finding appointments with Prometric. Those candidates, some of them are, you're gonna have to probably just honestly wait and test with PSI and testing with PSI begins on June 14th. down here so that everybody has those uh those dates. yeah and again the good thing for you is like you can migrate your eligibilities in this you know late april early may or from then on time frame and then you can schedule your appointment with psi at that time so it doesn't mean you have to wait until june 14th to then migrate and then try to get an appointment for june 16th that would be a terrible idea what you should do is if you want to test in in later june you should wait, migrate your eligibilities to PSI once we turn on the migration, and then you can immediately start looking at appointments in June in the PSI network. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of benefits, and I'm excited to hear about how that's going for the candidates. Let's, I would say the uh, good news is so far we've, we've actually gotten really good feedback. We had a pilot tester started testing on the 9th. So this past weekend, we had ARE candidates in testing, and we're getting, um, so far the results are good. It's what we want. We've done a lot of testing, um, and it, it seems to be proving fruitful. Yeah, that's great to hear. Let's um, look through some of our questions that we've had come in here. Let me see if I can find one about PSI since we're already on that topic. Um, I think you may have already answered this one, but maybe we can just uh, hammer the point home. Uh, this is from Jenna.Melvin. Does PSI have the same testing interface as Prometric or will the test look different after the PSI migration? Yeah, the, the test isn't going to look any different. Like it's still the same blue bar at the top. It's still the same navigations at the bottom. It's still the same questions are going to show up in the middle on a white screen. Um, 
like I said, there's a banner, a little banner, a PSI banner at the top of the screen, whether you're in a test center or online. That's probably the only noticeable difference. You're going to see it when you actually stare at a monitor. Um, I think the other thing you'll notice is, yeah, PSI, like PSI test centers are going to be configured a little bit differently than some Prometric test centers. Again, I don't think that's going to throw you off as a candidate because we all know it. Like test centers are not these wonderfully architecturally designed spaces, <laughs> um, right? We all know it. Like test centers are, they're pretty utilitarian in nature. It's like 18 layers of beige on top of one another. Um, that is the reality of testing in a, in a test center. Yeah, let's, um, I had a question, another question here, totally unrelated from uh, Desiree G. Curry. She's asking a question about breaks. And she wants to know, are you allowed to stop the clock every, uh, sorry, stop the clock slash lock everything more than once, as in divide that 45 minutes into more than one break? Yeah, great question. Um, and the answer to the question is yes, you can, the way the exam is currently configured is you are given a, let's, so in PPD and PDD, the two big divisions, you get 45 minutes of break time. In the four smaller divisions, you get 30 minutes of break time. You can use that break time however you want. So you can you can go to take a break. It'll take you to that uh, review screen. Make sure all of your items that you have viewed are answered the way you want them answered, because this is a critical point. Because when you go on break, when you come off of break, any item you've previously viewed will be locked, and you cannot go back and look at it again or change your answer. So, so that's that's a critical thing. Don't take a break until you know you're comfortable with all of the answers that you have all on all the items you've seen. But you can use, you can take as many breaks as you want. Um, and I will also say, you can take more breaks than even the 45 minute break time. So if, and this may happen to you, but you you may be testing and you take one break and you use up 20 minutes of your break time. That's okay. And then you come back, you test some more, you take a second break and you use up 15 minutes of break time. And so you still have 10 minutes of break time left. If you if you take a third break, and let's say that third break takes longer than 10 minutes, what you can still be on break, but what will happen is your test clock will start running. When your break time runs out, your test clock does begin. But I know for some candidates, they're okay with that. Like you may be moving along pretty good and say, well, I've got this extra time on the clock and I just wanna take another break. You can do that. But I will caution that yes, once your break time, the 45 minutes expires, your test clock will resume counting. All right, and then uh, I'm just gonna fire off some unrelated questions here. Sorry, Jared. Um, I've got a question here from Rocco Albert saying, this is kind of a specific situation, I think looking for some advice, saying, uh, I'm currently, my current testing jurisdiction is New York. I've already passed PJM. I've since moved to Florida and I'm continuing testing here. I was told that I can't change my jurisdiction to Florida. Um, and he's wondering, should he get licensed in New York and try to get reciprocity in Florida? What do you, what do you think his best uh, step forward would be? Or is he being given the wrong advice that he can't, that he should just uh, change his jurisdiction? Well, he, so Rocco, I'm going to say the, you may be given the correct advice. And so, and here's why, because New York is a jurisdiction that does allow you to gain initial licensure without a NAB accredited degree, whereas Florida requires the NAB accredited degree. So the reason, if somebody told you that you're not able to change your jurisdiction with of eligibility because of your education, 
and you're somebody who does not have a NAB degree, then that was accurate information. Now, if you have a NAB degree and you started testing with New York and you want to start testing with Florida, you you can do that. So then then I would say somebody gave you the wrong information. So and this is where you know situations are very unique, but it kind of depends on you and your situation. Um, if you are a non-NAB degree candidate, great. Um, you would then be limited to changing your jurisdiction from New York to one of the 17 jurisdictions that accept it. So if not New York, maybe you would go to Wisconsin or Tennessee or California. But I know Florida requires a NAB degree, so that may have been why you got that answer. So if you don't have a NAB degree, then yes, kind of answering your second part of your question, which is you can complete, get your initial licensure with the state of New York, complete a little additional experience, and then you could qualify to get reciprocal licensure in other jurisdictions um, through an experienced architect path. Great advice there. Uh, I've got a, I've, we've had a couple of questions uh, along the similar, um, a similar path, somebody explaining their situation and um, looking for some advice. I'll, I'll read one more here from Eric talking about his situation where he's located in California, worked at an architectural firm for about five years with, and he does not have an, a NAB accredited degree. Um, unfortunately, the architect he worked for passed away and he didn't get his experience signed. Um, his question is, is there any way for um, that experience to count for him? And uh, he's worrying about, wondering about how does he uh, go about submitting his experience hours for his education reciprocation? Yep. Uh, so the reality is that we do have a process in place. If you worked with somebody who has now passed away and is not able to approve your um, experience, right? It's it is an unfortunate situation. Um, this is a very specific situation where you will need to contact NCARB customer service. They can, you know, you're gonna have to kind of get on the phone with them would even be my suggestion more so than even an email and just kind of talk with one of our customer service representatives about your situation, where you're at. Um, and yes, we actually do have a form in place for, well, my supervisor isn't alive anymore. And so I'll, I'll put it out there. Our, our NCARB customer service number is 202 879-0520. So you can call, speak with one of our customer service representatives. They'll be able to look inside of your NCARB record, see exactly where you're at, understand if, where your education is, if you've sent us your transcript, and help you based on your specific situation. All right, I have, uh, I have a couple of questions here um, about IDP. Uh, two people have asked, uh, they fulfilled their IDP requirements. Do they apply to AXP? Do they have to start over? Um, is there any sort of a migration between those two programs? Um, so there, there, there was a transition from IDP to what is now called AXP. If you were somebody who completed your IDP, you're like me. I, when I went through the licensure process, I was an IDP person. Um, you don't have to do anything. Like you're good. Like you're done. Don't worry about it. If you log into your NCARB record, it's going to say that your your experience is complete. If you completed IDP, you have completed AXP. All right, that settles that. Um, what about what about trying to test from another country at a Prometric Center? Is that uh, option available to people? It is. Um, the ARE is available in select foreign locations. We're not like in the entire Prometric network um, around the globe. And the same thing will happen with PSI. So in the 
we made sure, and that was part of our interview process, as, as you can imagine, we interviewed PSI multiple times. Um, PSI is able to deliver remote, in remote locations around the globe in the same countries that candidates have ever tested on the ARE in with Prometric around the globe. So that's going to continue. Um, so there are select locations in, I think, 20 some countries, I don't actually have the number off the top of my head, um, where the ARE is delivered today. And candidates who live outside of the United States can also test online. Like there's no limit to where you are sitting when you're taking an online exam. All right, and I've got a question from Shannon here saying, uh, Shannon has a non-NAB accredited degree and was told by the state of Colorado where they're seeking licensure that they're required to log 7,540 hours with the XP before they can begin taking the tests. Um, and their NCARB record says that they need 3740. So I think that's about half. Uh, which one's correct? Uh, the answer is both are correct. Um, and this is where, and here's why, I'll explain it. Um, for NCARB, the AXP program is the 3740. And so as far as NCARB is concerned, once you do 3,740 hours appropriately across the six experience areas, you are done with AXP. Colorado is requiring the additional 3,740 hours for licensure. And so what they're doing is they're basically telling you, and which is good to know, just keep reporting hours. So fill up your 3,740 and just keep going to report more hours in your NCARB record. Once you get to the 7,700 or whatever the number was, um, then you will have everything documented in your NCARB record. We can send that to Colorado and then they can process you for licensure. Right, and I've got another question here about reciprocity. Um, Someone is wondering if there's a resource which discusses how to best gain reciprocity, and um, they're saying that that could be particularly useful uh, if the firm's service area includes multiple of the 55 um, jurisdictions. Sure. I think your your best resource to understand the initial licensure rules and requirements and reciprocal licensure rules and requirements is on the NCARB website. So go to ncarb.org scroll down and there's this map we just updated our website there's a map of the u.s kind of askew and there's a button that's jurisdictional licensing tool and if you click on that button it's going to take you to an interactive map of our 55 members and what you're able to do is across the top of that website the first tab is initial licensure and the second tab is reciprocal licensure and you're able to basically pick the jurisdictions you're interested in so let's say you're interested in georgia you can pick the state of Georgia on the interactive map and it will highlight all the rules for Georgia. So that's one way to, to use this tool. Or what you can do is you can read the rules on the left-hand side of the screen and you can click on the rule and it will highlight all the states that require that rule. So you can kind of use the tool both ways of, boy, I'm really interested in Georgia. I want to understand Georgia. Or you can use the tool from the perspective of, I don't have an ab degree. And I want to know in which jurisdictions I can get licensed. So you look for the question that says, you know, does your jurisdiction require the NAB degree? And if you click it, to click that question, what's going to happen is those 38 jurisdictions that say yes are going to highlight in blue. The jurisdictions that said, no, you don't need an NAB degree are going to come up in gray. And then you're going to be able to write those down. Be like, okay, these are my 17 choices. 
and then you can go look at each individual state to understand the requirements like Colorado versus Maryland versus New York versus Wisconsin. All right, I got a, uh, another question about reciprocity here. Um, Hadaway22 is asking, when choosing the alternate, alternative path towards licensure, you're required to wait three years after having been awarded your license before you can uh, apply for reciprocity. And they're saying that after eight to 10 years of AXP time, that wait seems a little bit out of sorts. And they're wondering if this requirement is a state-by-state -state requirement or if, the time, if there's any other way sort of to make that happen sooner for them. Um, it is, I, I understand exactly what you're saying about time. You've already put in all this extra time. You've, you've taken the area and passed it and you've got license and now you want to get reciprocal licensure and a state is saying, yeah, and we want you to wait another two or three years, right? I, I completely understand that that, that is frustrating, um, but the reality is that is because that is their rule. Like that, that is what the state is saying that they want from you. Um, you may find some jurisdictions that, and again, this, their, our licensing tool can help you here. You could find some jurisdictions that would be willing to say, oh, well, Will, you've been licensed through this alternative path, but now you know we'll let you get licensed sooner. Some will say yes, others will say no, we need this extra years of experience. And so it is very dependent. We don't control the states. We try to work with the states so that they, they adopt state consistent standards. Um, all right, how about can you take all of your ARIES in one jurisdiction and then apply for a license in a different jurisdiction? For example, um, testing in California and then applying for license, sure, after passing all six in Colorado. A lot of Colorado architects are, are on the uh, on the sure. call. Sure, um, you absolutely can. So here's what, here's what will happen for you as a licensure candidate when you get done with the ARE. So when you take and pass your final division of the ARE, NCARB will send you an email like the next day. And that email is going to say, you know, congratulations. And especially if you're done with the, it will either say, congratulations, you're done with the ARE. You still need to complete AXP. Like let's say you're not done with AXP. Your email is going to say that. Okay. But let's say you're somebody who's already done with AXP and you pass your last division of the ARE. You're going to get an email from us that says, congratulations, you're done with AXP and the ARE. And then the next part of that email is going to say, and you previously told us you want to get licensed in the state of California, in this example. Is that still the case? Like we're asking you a question because what we do is when you're done with AXP and the ARE, we start bundling up all of your information and we're going to transmit it to that state of California. Unless when you get that email, you reach back out to customer service and say, you know, yep, I've been doing all this stuff and I thought I was going to California, but I really want to go to Colorado or I really want to go somewhere else. Like I want to go to Maryland. If you let us know, then what we will do is we can work with you to change that jurisdiction and we'll never send your stuff to California. We'll send your stuff to Maryland or Colorado or whatever. Now, again, I will say our why you reach out to customer service is because they are also going to look at your education. They're going to understand where they can send your stuff that you will actually get a license versus if you don't have an ab degree and you say well send my stuff to minnesota we're actually going to tell you well if we send your stuff to minnesota minnesota is not going to license you because you don't have an ab degree so you absolutely can change your jurisdiction while you're testing our customer service team can help you understand how to do that and the rules that you may be bumping into depending on where you're testing and where you want to go to 
Yeah, we've got a related question there that you, uh, you, you pretty much answered, but I'll ask it just so we can hammer home the point. Um, someone is asking, they've got a, they're a non-NAB degreed candidate, and uh, they're wondering if once they earn a license, can they qualify for their initial license and certificate and get licensed in a jurisdiction that does require a NAB degree? They can. So, and I mentioned this earlier, and I think it's great to repeat it, which is we have 17 jurisdictions out of the 55 that will say, we'll give you an initial license without a NAB degree. So you're in one of those 17 right now and you get your license and that's great. And as we heard um, earlier, then what you're gonna do is probably get a couple more years of experience. You can go through what's called the um, Broadly Experienced Architect Program and get your NCARB certificate through that process. And once you have that, there's actually only nine jurisdictions that won't give you reciprocal licensure. So the 17 that let you into licensure now becomes 40, what, 46 jurisdictions that say, oh yeah, we will give you reciprocal licensure now that you've gone through this broadly experienced architect path. Right, um, we have time for a few more here. Um, Got a question saying, I failed my last exam and now my rolling clock will expire next month. I will lose my 4.0 credits for three exams. What can I do in the meantime while my rolling clock is expiring? So I think the reality is if you know that you're going to have some exams expire because of the rolling clock, because you simply cannot test again before that's going to happen, I think it's it's time to now reset your testing plan, right? To understand, okay, when that what will happen is when those divisions expire, you will have to reach out to either NCARB or your jurisdiction um, to have new eligibilities created for those divisions. Um, and then what will happen is you're basically going to get new eligibilities for ARE 5.0 divisions. So it's starting to now pivot in your planning to, okay, I have to start preparing to take these three divisions in the future. Right. Um, maybe maybe uh, one or two more here. Can you begin scheduling exams for PSI if you've not yet started testing um, and do not need to migrate? So you you cannot schedule exams with PSI today because we haven't turned on what's called this migration tool, but we're going to be turning on the migration tool for candidates. Um, again, as I said, kind of this late April, early May timeframe. So like think like a two weeks from now. So two weeks, you know, two and a half weeks from now, you're going to be able to go into your NCARB record and your all your eligibilities for Prometric are still going to be on the screen, but you're going to see a blue banner across the top that says, you know, you can migrate to PSI, click here to do that. And then you'll be able to click on the little, there's a little workflow you go through, you're like, yep, I want to migrate. You type the word migrate, you hit yes. And then what will happen is your eligibilities with Prometric all get turned off new eligibilities because they're a completely different system, new eligibilities get created for PSI and you are now a PSI candidate and you can start scheduling appointments for June 14th or beyond with PSI. All right, another PSI question. If I purchased a seat but haven't scheduled my exam, does that transfer to PSI? Absolutely. So your exam seats inside of your record are not Prometric exam seats. Exam seats are just exam seats. Basically, they're a credit, right, on your account. Those credits carry with you with the migration to PSI. Right. I think uh, I think we've answered most, if not all, of these questions here. So 
Uh, I'll just say thank you, Jared. This was great. I'm, I'm glad we did this. Um, great. Well, everyone thanks for having me. Yeah, always a pleasure. Um, to everyone listening, be sure to register for our next ARI Live broadcast on May 19th, 2022. We'll revisit several questions focused on site selection from PPD, PDD, and PA. And we'll discuss how to locate a building on a site, considering factors such as topography, zoning regulations, and microclimate. I'll post okay. the link to yeah. Great. And so, Chris, I'm sorry. I was gonna. I was gonna interrupt. I said I. I one more plug for NCARB oh, yeah. and for all of for all of you licensure candidates, which is, you may have heard, hopefully, um, that as of Monday of this week, NCARB has launched a a large survey called the Analysis of Practice. And if you haven't heard about it, trust me, we're gonna email you again. So please don't <laughs> ignore our emails. Um, this is a once in a decade. NCARB does a major validation survey research project about what's going on in architectural practice and we want to hear from you and we want to hear from all of the you know licensed architects out there about what are you doing in practice how are you doing it in practice what are you focused on what's important to you what's not and i will tell you the answer to these questions that you give us are what will drive future changes to both the are the axp and the licensure process so that's why the plug is so important because I, we really, I'm not kidding when I say like, we literally want every licensure candidate and every licensed architect to take this survey. We know they're not going to, but the more people that do, the more valid the response is about what's really happening because NCARB reacts to what you tell us. So please do the survey uh, sometime in the next two weeks. Yeah, I'll tell you, uh, I definitely plan on responding to that, and I'm excited. I, I've got the email in my inbox, so it's uh, it's on my to-do list. Great. Um, and, every, and everybody listening should as well. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the webinar, we've launched our ARE guarantee. We're confident that if you use your expert membership to the fullest, you'll pass the ARE. And if you don't pass, we'll pay for your retake. To learn more about how to qualify for the guarantee or to check out our individual memberships and see what kinds of materials we offer, please go to blackspectacles.com and under the ARI prep heading, you'll find a section on our guarantee. And I just shared a link to that in the chat. Um, also to learn more about how you can get your whole firm on a membership and have your boss pay for it, go to blackspectacles.com and head to our pricing section. I'll share a link to that in the chat as well. Uh, on to our giveaway, the lucky winner of the Black Spectacles t-shirt is Manuel P. Uh, we'll reach out to you via email to get your size and shipping information. And just as a reminder to everybody else, if you'd like to be eligible to win a t-shirt, uh, just post a question uh, that you have about our feature topic in the in our community during our next ARI Live. And, uh, you know, remember that our community is always buzzing, not just during ARI Live. So feel free to poke around and uh, see what your fellow architects are up to and asking about. Finally, be sure to stick around for a few minutes and take our survey and share any suggestions that you may have. I promise we read, we read every word that you write and use them to fine tune our upcoming episodes. Thanks for watching.